0: In one of the shortest letters in the New Testament, Jude encourages his readers to have mercy on those who doubt. It's a sentence that's easy to overlook, but as somebody who at different seasons in life has struggled immensely with doubt and questioning the reality of faith, I've spent a lot of time thinking about Jude's words. What do we do when we begin to ask questions about what we believe? How do we navigate doubt and disbelief? What does it look like to have mercy on our friends and our family who struggle to accept the claims of Christianity? Today we're talking with Elisa Childers. She was a member of the best-selling band Zoe Girl. She's a speaker, author, and popular blogger. But several years ago, Elisa went through a serious crisis of faith. And that's led her to have a great deal of insight into the experience of those who doubt. Elisa and I discuss her own story as well as what it looks like to walk through doubt well. And I think you'll find her insights to be really helpful if you yourself are questioning or if you know and love somebody else who's going through a season of doubt. I'm Travis Lowe, and this is The Stone Table. There's going to be a lot of people listening who maybe aren't quite familiar with you and your work. So could you maybe give us a little bit of background, who you are, how, what you're up to, what, what sort of work you're doing?
1: Yeah, well, I have kind of an unusual story. I Grew up kind of more in the artistic side of, of Christianity. My dad was a singer-songwriter and was in one of the first Christian bands. He was kind of considered a pioneer of Christian rock and of CCM. And so when I was 19, 20, 21, around there, I, I started kind of pursuing that myself and ended up signing a record deal and moving to Nashville. And so I was in a group called Zoe Girl, which probably your listeners probably don't know, but maybe their their parents do. <laughs> but uh, we toured for seven years or so. And, you know, it was it was such a great experience. I got to tour with uh, so many great people and play just amazing venues that are just dream venues. And it was just it was such a great experience. But you know, during that time, I got a little bit disconnected from church. And it's very hard when you're on the road and you're away on Sundays, and maybe not going to a church every Sunday. And I think that kind of set me up to have a, a particular vulnerability. And when we came off the road, uh, I, I was still doing some music. And so I was invited to go to uh, just a non-denominational church here in Middle Tennessee, where I live, and I shared some music, and there was just this really great connection with the the pastor and the people. My husband and I just loved it. And so we actually started attending that church. and it was it was kind of the first time that we had attended a church where we really felt like these are our people. We just feel so connected. We loved how the pastor really thought outside the box. He was an independent thinker. He was an intellectual. and I hadn't been exposed to a lot of that before. And so, Throughout the process of going to this church, I was invited to be a part of kind of an inner circle study group that uh, would be viewed as like a ministry training type type thing. It was going to last four years. And so in the context of being in this class, the pastor revealed that he was more of an agnostic. He called himself a hopeful Agnostic, And I I realize now that words that are being used to describe something like that are words like deconstruction. A lot of Christians are experiencing something called like a theological deconstruction where everything that they had been taught and told, they begin to question and they deconstruct their theology back down to ground zero. And so I think that's what was going on with this pastor. And it really rattled my faith because he brought up a lot of questions and a lot of objections to historic Christianity that I had honestly never even thought of before. I've always been in love with Jesus. I've always loved the Bible. Ever since I was a little girl, I would study the Bible. And so when these objections were brought to me from a pastor who I I had already come to respect and trust, it was really just, Earth-shaking and rattling to my faith, and I so it sent me into what I've described on my blog and other places as a dark night of the soul. And not to use a cliche, but it really was. I, I was not just doubting the truth of what I believed about God and Christianity and Jesus, the Bible, but really questioning whether this God exists at all. And I had never experienced doubts like that before. And, and the sad thing is, is that at the time. I didn't know one Christian who could answer some of these things this pastor was bringing up. I didn't know anyone who'd even heard of some of these questions. Yeah, And so God led me to study apologetics and church history and theology. And it was through that study that I went through my own deconstruction. Uh, I, I do believe that my beliefs kind of went back to ground zero. And as I began to rebuild what I began to discover is that the historic claims of Christianity are true.
0: Well, I I know in in your story, there's a lot of parallels with some of the experiences that I had in large part when I first went to college and encountered things like higher criticism, uh, Wellhausen theory uh, encountered really the, the historical critical approach to the Bible and had probably multiple crises of faith over the course of my five and a half years of trying to get my undergraduate. Uh, but but I wonder, you, you talked about having a faith going into this that maybe wasn't so intellectually grounded. So maybe you could talk a little bit, what was your experience growing up as a Christian? What did your faith look like before you kind of hit this wall of doubt and deconstruction?
1: That's a great question because a lot of Times I think people who are on the intellectual side will make the false assumption that other people who may not have such a rich intellectual Christian life just have a blind faith or some kind of a um, just they're just believing what they're told because that's what they're told. And I I can honestly say my faith was not blind. My parents did a really great job at modeling genuine Christianity for me. They they would repent in front of me. They would uh, they were very honest about their struggles and. Uh, strong in prayer. Everything was prayer. If, If you know, that was just a regular, I regularly saw my parents reading their Bibles and praying together. And they really put their money where their mouth is. And another aspect of that is that growing up, my mom had us very involved as there's, I have three sisters and she had us all really involved in street ministry and ministry to homeless people. A regular part of my childhood life was going out to the missions in LA on Skid Row where I I grew up in LA and working the soup lines at the Fred Jordan mission and uh, going out and ministering to people. I regularly saw my mom hugging and loving on prostitutes and, and drug addicts and drug dealers. This was just a regular part of, of my life. And then my dad would go out and do, street ministry, just in the streets of Hollywood and New York and LA. So I encountered some of these objections as a young kid.
0: Right. You're seeing the problem of evil in front of you in a lot of ways, right?
1: That's true. That's true. And a lot of people would bring that up when I would witness to them, but there was just something in my mind where I just knew like, if you could just taste and see, you would know. And I expected atheists to have those objections because they're atheists. And so I think what made me vulnerable as an adult was some of this coming from Christians and pastors that I respected. But yeah, I can honestly say my faith was not blind. It was informed. It was informed by watching the power of God transform people's lives. But I think what I realized as an adult, that the intellectual deficiency left me very vulnerable because then when somebody can try to convince you that those experiences were just, you know, your endorphins kicking in, which can happen at a rock concert or this or that, it can be very rattling. And I found myself needing to know with evidences that this is actually true, that the Bible is not corrupted. There's, there hasn't been you know all of this translation after translation, and it's just gotten lost and all of that. That's, that's just not true. Those things are not true. And so I think I just needed to know that for myself, that the thing I was basing my life
0: on, the Word of God, was something that I could rely on it's interesting that you mentioned the the challenge that came from hearing some of these perspectives from Christians, because I, I encountered something similar coming out of college because in my mind, the objections that I was hearing to the Christian faith, like, like you said, they came from atheist college professors. And at the time I was getting ready to go to seminary and I was like, surely these PhD seminary professors both know these objections and have answers to these objections But before I jumped into seminary, I I ended up in a teaching role. And so I'm reading through just piles of commentaries. And I think I just assumed that all Christians agreed on the things that I thought were central to Christianity. Uh, And so then to read a commentary where something like original sin was questioned or to uh, read a a blog post from a self-professed Christian who would question the historicity of a biblical event sent me into kind of a similar tailspin where it was like, Mm. oh my gosh, it's not just my atheist college professors. It's, it's people who would yeah. still claim a Christian identity. And for me during this season, which was several years ago now, uh, my prayer life looked really desperate. And, and so I'm curious for you, what, what did your spiritual life look like while you're in the middle of the season of doubt? Were you praying? Did you stop praying? Were you just sort of choking out prayers at the ceiling? Like-
1: <laughs> I think that's a good description. Choking out prayers at the ceiling probably describes it pretty well. I, I was in like a cognitive dissonance where I hadn't heard the answers yet. All I'd heard are these very in my... See, I, I didn't grow up learning a lot of critical thinking and logic. I realize now my parents taught me to think critically because they thought critically without saying like, here's, you know, here's what a syllogism is, or here's what this law of logic is. But they, they thought that way. They were very independent thinkers. And so they taught me to question things uh, in a good way. Yeah. My spiritual life, I can honestly say I never lost my faith, but it was rattled to the point where there was enough doubt that my prayers did become sort of desperate. Like God, if you're out there, then do you know do this and and i i found myself because i'm i am an artist i'm a musician i'm a singer going to music and so when i would rock my daughter in the rocking chair at night i would sing hymns and it was like my desperate plea into the darkness just these these just these core truths of of just the basics singing these in in hymns sort of saying i know that this is true but i don't know yeah and and that's why that that prayer that that man prayed when he met jesus with his where his son had been demon possessed and was continually thrown into the fire and and the man is asking jesus to heal his son and basically he says if you're willing and jesus says if i'm willing all things are possible to him who believes and then the man says i believe help my unbelief which is almost a contradictory prayer. So I found myself praying a lot of prayers like that. I believe, help my unbelief. And boy, I'll tell you, I think that when you pray prayers like that, those are the kind of prayers God loves to answer. Mm. Prayers of honest doubt.
0: Absolutely. I I know I come from a, a family of Christians and to my knowledge, none of them ever really went through like a crisis of faith, which I think in a lot of ways is a gift from God, but in a lot of ways it makes it hard to relate to somebody who's struggling with something like that. So, for you, what what were some of the what were some of the things that Christians in your life did that maybe weren't so helpful? So, if there if there's a a mom or a dad listening to this and they've got uh, a son or daughter or even a spouse who's going through this sort of crises of faith, what would be some things you would counsel them against doing as they try to encourage?
1: That's a really great question. Uh, during this whole time, my dad was amazing he I mean it didn't matter what I brought up he didn't he never reacted with fear, not one time hmm. he just was very calm about it and would just ask me questions, well, what is it about that 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 convinces you or that rattles you or what you know and and maybe not even always offering me some pat answer but but he he was very good about that, and he would just kind of say, well, you know yeah, I kind of I, I remember thinking about that stuff when I was a new Christian let me think about it some more and and try to figure out what I, how I was thinking about it. And, you know, why does that particular one rattle you so much? And what is it about this story that that you're you're questioning? And, and it was just very helpful because I felt then that that was a safe place to come with my doubts. I, I knew I could talk to him and I wouldn't get shut down. I wouldn't get told, you just need to have faith or don't question these things or... Uh, anything like that it was it was just uh, a very open line of communication so that's the thing and i go through this with my daughter she's 9 years old and you mentioned that years ago a lot of christians just didn't have these kind at least it seems like people weren't having such massive crises of faith and i think you rightly pointed out that i think people who went to seminaries and were exposed to higher criticism maybe did but none of that was really in the mainstream of evangelical culture until about 15, 20 years ago when Bart Ehrman starts writing lay-level books and people get their hands on these things and they're going, what is going on? I've
0: never heard this before. Exactly. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And like when I was nine and I read through the Bible, it never occurred to me to look at the battles of Israel and go, hey, that might've that seems unfair. Or why did they have to kill all those people? I was just like, David won the battle. You know, <laughs> right. that's awesome. yeah. Praise God. And, and I didn't even, it didn't even occur to me to question the historicity of anything, but we read the story of Moses with my daughter and without being exposed to any arguments against Christianity, she wants to know, how do we know that really happened? Mom, yeah. you know, she's already questioning the supernatural and miracles but I think it's because of the culture she's growing up in. And it's a tough thing Christians are facing now, which is why I think we've got the emotional side of our faith pretty much like handled. I don't think we need help feeling more. But
0: yeah, I, maybe even less. We should probably feel yeah, less.
1: I mean, I think we're good there. And and a focus on the intellectual a little more would not hurt. A little bit more focus on hermeneutics and Bible study is is going to, you know, I, sometimes I hear the objection, well, I don't want to get, uh, you know, too intellectual with my faith or too stuff, but a little bit's okay. You know, yeah. maybe just a little bit would be a good start.
0: Sure. Yeah. Well, and I think that's part of taking seriously the fact that in Christ, all the treasures of wisdom are hidden and God's given us minds that we can love him with. Uh, I don't think heart and mind need to be divorced from each other. Exactly. Um, and nor does one need to overpower the other, but we need to, to love God with both. One of the things that you mentioned that, that I do want to come back to is that for you in the middle of this crisis, uh, sort of singing these central truths of Christianity that are contained in the hymns were kind of what carried you in a lot of ways. And I wonder how many crises of faith have been initiated because things that people thought were central to Christianity were questioned when those weren't actually central issues. Yeah. And so for example, I remember talking to uh, a student years ago who'd grown up in a, a staunch King James Onlyist background. And so when, when he realized that the King James wasn't the best translation of the Bible, all of the dominoes fell or, or somebody who grew up in a very staunch young earth creationist perspective, who maybe questions the age of the earth and thinks that the whole gospel hinges on that because that's been made a a central component. Mm -hmm. So do you think that there's an element there where we're doing a disservice to people because they don't actually know what the fundamentals of Christianity are?
1: I do. I think that's an excellent point that you bring up. And it is something that I battle quite a bit when I go to teach apologetics at places. There There are so many Christians that think, like you brought up young earth versus old earth who believe that they, they think that there's only young earth camp and evolution, that there's nothing else. right And they think that anybody that might question the age of the earth is automatically an evolutionist or doesn't take the Bible literally, or doesn't believe in original sin or, or something like that. And it's just, it's a misunderstanding. And that, you know, that has never been a test for, for orthodoxy throughout the history of the church. The age of the earth has never been a test for orthodoxy and, I believe the Bible is without error. I believe it's inspired by God. But even if you found a mistake in the Bible, it still doesn't change the fact that Jesus was resurrected from the dead and that that it it doesn't affect the fact that the gospel is true. Sure. And so, yeah, I, I think I think just basic studies on the essentials. I've done this with college kids, where we'll study just what's essential, what's important, what's not as important. And it's it is interesting how I think with a lot of the biblical illiteracy that we're seeing, combined with the postmodern influence of the culture, people have that all jumbled and and can't really get to the basics of the faith.
0: And whenever I encounter somebody who's going through a really heavy season of doubt. They use some of the desperate things that I think we all say during our dark night of the soul, like everything's falling apart. I don't know what I believe anymore. One of the places I try and start is something like the Nicene Creed and just say, can you agree with this in an in an unqualified way? And sometimes people will say, no, like I, I don't know if God exists or I don't know if Jesus was born of a virgin. But more often than not, they'll say, no, I I still agree with all that. And I say, yeah. okay, let's let's start here. To me, the, the Nicene Creed's a good essentials list. Now, what would you say are some of the essentials that are kind of the bedrock of Christianity? And then, what yeah. would you say are maybe some peripheral issues for somebody who's wrestling with that? Yeah. I
1: give a talk on progressive Christianity, and when you want to define progressive Christianity, how Christianity, like the beliefs of people are progressing, you have to define what the original one was. You know, you can't, you can't tell what's progressing unless you know what, like you said, the bedrock of Christianity is. And I think the Nicene Creed is a great place to start as well. But if you want to go even earlier than that, there's a creed, a scholar, Gary Habermas has identified over 40 creeds in the New Testament, which, which means that these are things that were written and affirmed long before they were even written down in the new testament and arguably the earliest creed we have as christians is found in first corinthians 15. now first corinthians 15 was written in the mid 50s but the creed that's contained within it even according to the most liberal scholars Dominic cross and the jesus seminar guys they will even affirm is is from three to seven years from jesus resurrection So this is as early as it gets to figure out what Christians thought Christianity was. And in this creed, Paul says Jesus died for our sins, which is important because a lot of people will believe, of course that Jesus died, but maybe he was just murdered by an angry mob or maybe, you know, he didn't really, that wasn't a sacrifice he made. That was just him being martyred or murdered.
0: Right. They do away with something like the atonement in in general.
1: But, but we have, we have at least Substitutionary atonement. You know, I'm not even talking about all the tweaks of penal and satisfaction, all that stuff. Right. But, but you have a substitutionary uh, view of atonement right there in the earliest creed that Jesus died for our sins and that he was resurrected. And twice in that creed it says according to the scriptures. Hmm. So it says that Jesus died and was resurrected according to the scriptures. Uh I'm sorry, that Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was resurrected according to to the scriptures. So it's really clear to me that the foundation of Christianity what historic Christians have believed from the beginning is that that Jesus's death and resurrection was for the salvation of our souls and and it's linked heavily to scriptures. Now of course they didn't have the New Testament yet but they were linking it to the Old Testament which Jesus himself affirmed and then predicted the new. So I think that we have a faith that's rooted in scripture. I think we have a faith that Essentially, I kind of, I mean, I'd like to talk to somebody. I'm I'm always, I'll just tell you that one of my greatest fears is accidentally committing heresy. Oh my
0: gosh. I Do you
1: feel that way too. I,
0: I literally will preach my sermons out loud to the wall, especially when I'm talking about the Trinity or Christology, because I'm so afraid that I'll accidentally become a heretic. Yeah, and it'll end up on a podcast.
1: I, I don't even like talking about the Trinity for that reason, because I know I'm going to say something heretical, and then somebody's going to say she's a heretic, and I'm like, wait, I'm new here. I'm still trying to figure it out. <laughs> yeah. But you know, but but there are things that you that are true, but you don't necessarily have to know them. There are things that have to be true in order for you to be able to be saved. And then there are things that are non-essential. And so, in the category of things, like someone could hear the gospel and respond to Jesus and may not be aware of the full definition of the Trinity yet. Sure. But then I would say they couldn't deny that. You know, you have to affirm that as you learn that. But I would say non-essentials, I mean, I still think non-essentials are important. It's important for Christians to investigate what they think believe the bible is saying about these things but i would say the age of the earth is one of them now evolution for me uh if evolution were irrefutably proven true which i don't believe it is i don't believe the evidence has proven a a macro version of evolution true but if it were that would have serious implications for the gospel for original sin for um so i'm gonna die on that hill rather than how many exact years the earth is and but is that still an essential i i don't i don't i I think it it flirts with it i'm not totally sure i i think that for sure non-essentials would be dunking baptism or sprinkling baptism uh you know there's all kinds of issues that are not essential to the heart of christianity but they're important and i think anything you think about god
0: is important It's so interesting. A a couple months ago, I started teaching a church history class here at the church and I'm using this little book by Justin Holcomb, who's an Episcopal priest called Know the Heretics. And then he's got another one called Know the Creeds. And before I I started the class on reading Know the Heretics, I asked them to tell me what they thought heresy was. I I think it was was indicative of how lightly we use that word because it was things like whether you baptize by immersion or you baptize by pouring or you baptize infants or only believers, that was a, a heresy issue. And I, I don't think anybody meant anything malicious by it, but, but it just shows that when everything's heresy, nothing's heresy. Like Very baptism true. by immersion is, is not the same thing as denying the deity of Christ. Right. And I wonder how many people have questioned something that they thought was central and, and wrestled with real doubt over that issue received the brand of heretic and said, well, if I'm already a heretic, I might as well go all the way down that road. I wonder mm. how many people we've accidentally created mm. uh, as actual heretics by just being flippant with our words. You know what I'm saying?
1: Well, I think that's such a great point. And I've definitely met quite a few people that were raised. In fact, a lot of the progressive Christians I know, I have a lot of compassion for because they were raised a lot of them in Either spiritually abusive atmospheres, or really hypercritical atmospheres, or very almost cultish atmospheres, where everybody outside of our little sect is a heretic, and then when they meet other Christians who love Jesus and affirm basic things about Jesus that they affirmed, that's confusing because they go, "Well, wait, that that person's not a heretic," and so I think that that does create an atmosphere where someone can maybe walk away from things that they wouldn't have otherwise walked away from because they think that that's the only alternative. There's There are a lot of progressive Christian podcasts right now of people talking about, well, hey, I was told that if I believed the earth was more than 6,000 years old, then I was you know, not a Christian. So here wow. I am. And, and and instead of investigating, going, wait a second, there are a lot of very conservative uh, Christians who don't necessarily think that the earth is 6,000 years old. And the Bible actually doesn't say that the earth is 6,000 years old. And there's all these different issues to look at.
0: There's precedence in history too, with someone like Augustine, who is. Very... I love
1: I love Augustine. He's my, he's my like theological man crush. Yeah. yeah.
0: He's, he's the the one person other than Jesus. I can't wait to talk to in the new creation. Me too. So. I hope he's got a house set up and is taking questions. Yes. Because I got a lot.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: So and I guess I just wonder as we're kind of wrapping this up, we've probably got people who are wrestling with doubt right now, maybe who are thinking through some some of these complicated issues. What what would be your encouragement to them as they wrestle through this season?
1: There's all kinds of different ways to doubt. And my encouragement to anybody who's listening is, is to doubt honestly, to, to bring honest doubt to God, examine your motives. Like, am I doubting because I'm trying to justify my sin? Am I doubting because something bad happened and it was really painful and I wonder if God could even, I mean, that's a legitimate doubt to have. Uh, but I, I wrote a blog post a while back called four lessons we can learn from doubters in the Bible. And in all four occasions, God's response to the doubter was incredibly tender. Hmm. Um, I talk about the story I brought up earlier about the man with the son who was demon possessed and Jesus was so tender with him when he said, I believe help my unbelief. And, you know, Habakkuk was a great doubter. He was just questioning God. In fact, almost to, it makes you uncomfortable to read Habakkuk one, uh, the beginning of, of Habakkuk one, just, he's like scolding God and God doesn't chastise him. He answers him and and he deals with him and he and he interacts with him and there's John the Baptist who here's a guy that literally saw the holy spirit descend like a dove upon the son of god he heard heard the audible voice of god speaking and yeah. he later on he's sitting in Herod's prison and he doubts and he sends his disciples to ask jesus are you the one or should we look for another? Another. I mean, this is the prophet that we've waited 400 years of silence to herald the coming of the Messiah. And he himself is sitting in a prison going, did I get that right? Right. Yeah. And, and Jesus didn't send his disciples back and say, you know, you should never doubt or you shouldn't question these things. Jesus actually performed miracles in front of John's disciples and said, go back and tell them what you saw. Mm. There's also a bit of a reference to a prophecy that he knew John would understand with the particular miracles that he did. I think that there is clear biblical evidence that God welcomes honest doubters. Just read the Psalms. And so I would encourage everyone to to doubt honestly, to examine your motives, bring those to God in prayer, investigate the evidence, reject anything that isn't true. But I believe that anybody that that truly investigates and wants to know um, the core, it's there. And, and they're going to find, the, the evidence will lead them there. And just don't do it alone, you know, do it in community with others who are not encouraging you to doubt away from God, but to doubt toward God. Because often we can deconstruct and then reconstruct with an entirely new thing that isn't true. And, you know, surround yourself with with people who are understanding, who can help you.
0: Thanks for listening. This podcast is a resource from the College of Career Ministry of Baylife Church. Our goal is to equip our community to follow Christ faithfully and think carefully about the harder issues in the Christian faith. If you found this podcast helpful, please leave a review and subscribe. For College of Career Ministry, I'm Corey, and this is The Stone Table.